Hello, welcome to the Coaching Manual Podcast. I'm Pavel Williams. In this episode, we speak to two authors of a book called The Straight A Conspiracy, Hunter Martz and Katie O'Brien. They're two Harvard graduates who set up a tutoring company in Los Angeles and have also worked in New York and London and Oxford. So they have a ton of experience of both the US and the UK education system. So whilst the examples aren't always directly related to football and soccer, the theories and the concepts that they use to teach, uh, for example, maths or history, also do apply to learning almost anything else. So it's all about metacognition, or in other words, how to learn how to learn. And the examples in the book and the examples that we discuss in this interview can be directly applied to how you interact with your players and how you coach on the field or how you teach in the classroom. And just remember, if you go to thecoachingmanual.com, sign up for a free account and you'll get 26 free videos from the Southampton FC Academy. So you can see exactly what they're doing in their academy that makes them so successful. Okay, let's get into the interview. As ever, I feel like the obvious place to start is just to quickly introduce yourselves and, and explain, first of all, what the book is and, and talk about how you kind of got to that point where you felt like you needed to write it. Mm-hmm. Katie? Sure. Uh, well, I'm Katie O'Brien. This is... Hunter Motts. <laughs> um, we co-authored a book called The Straight A Conspiracy, Your Secret Guide to Ending the Stress of School and Totally Ruling the World. And that last part is important, but we'll get to that in a bit. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, our background is that we we ran a tutoring company together for about 10 years after graduating from college and worked with students of all ages, elementary school all the way through graduate school, every possible subject. And after spending that much time one-on-one with students really seeing their process, we started to get... It was really obvious to us, in fact, that everybody had the same issues. And no matter whether they were doing advanced physics in their graduate course or it was a kid just learning to add, the things that students run up against are the same, no matter what. And it and it dictates how they work through problems. And so we started to go into a lot of research because we heard kids say to us, oh, I'm just not a math person or, like, I'm not a natural writer, you know, so-and-so got the ear for languages in my family. And people say this about everything, about being musical, about being athletic. I mean, that's how people identify. And we started to do a lot of research into what that's really about. And we basically found out that everything everybody thinks about how what it takes to be smart or talented in something is a complete myth. Mm-hmm. And so we set out to debunk that and really get that information out there. So I think it makes sense to talk about some of the assumptions that perhaps the education system currently makes, which, mm-hmm. which you know you investigated and, and you decided, okay, is this true or is it false? But but what were those assumptions that you were kind of studying in the first place? I think the the, the biggest problem mm-hmm. is is that in education we are so focused on what we can see. We can see how many textbooks there are in the classroom. We can see you know how many teachers there are per student and all that sort of stuff. And the reality is is that most of what happens in education is stuff we can't see. It's the thoughts that happen in the student's head. It's how they feel about math. Do they feel that math is worthwhile? Do they feel it's a waste of time? Do they go home and do their homework? Do they go home and copy somebody else's homework? Like these are all the choices that are really driving the educational process and there's been almost no attention to them. And the interesting thing is is that most of those choices are being made by the student. 
right? It's the student who decides, oh, am I actually going to read the textbook? Oh, am I going to look up a word I don't know? Am I going to, you know, how am I going to think about this? Am I going to manage my own emotions? You know, that sort of stuff. And so what a large part of what we really want to do is move the assumption from thinking that the key to having a great educational system is to focus on the teachers and say it's really about seeing what the students are doing. What choices are they making? Because it's student choices that determine education and determine performance in general. So what were the big challenges that really struck you when you were tutoring? So you, you talked about, I think, probably the mindset, that, that sort of aspect. Was there a type of, perhaps, work that was being set that just didn't meet the, the way that children learn, children think? Was that a big challenge that you ran up against? I think the biggest challenge is that we're so many decades into setting up the wrong expectations for okay. how the learning process should feel okay. that really those feelings that we all have about how learning works and how it, what it's supposed to look like and what it's supposed to feel like and that if you are going to get something you'll just get it and if you don't, too bad. Um, that's, we're so many decades into that that it's really hard for people to step back and, and see that it doesn't have to be that way. And so you know, when students see the kid in their class that seems to just get it right away, everything is easy for them and they're not stressed out, that seems like it must be a natural thing because we've all been raised hearing myths about how, you know, major genius people get, you know, mm -hmm. people yeah. just have inventions occur to them like a light bulb out of thin air. Mozart was composing pieces when he was five that were, you know, world-altering pieces of music. So much of that is untrue. When you get down to it, it's just about the way that people work mm -hmm. and, and how many hours they put into the process. Um, but really to, to say to a student that's sitting in school today, having a horrible time, hating math class, you know, this is not what it has to feel like. It's just the way that you're approaching it. It's just the emotions that you've built up around it. So try to put that to the side. See if you can get through this one problem step by step. And, you know, but that's also been the most gratifying part of it is that it's, it's such a bigger shift than just finally getting an A in one class. You know, for the students that we work with, it's years of having the crappiest time ever in all of their classes. <laughs> and then, you know, transitioning into this thing where learning is fun and it's all about possibilities and challenges are still challenging, but they're not daunting and they're not crushing, you know, because it's not about who you are anymore. You didn't get born with a bum brain or a not math brain or whatever you believe. You know, it's really just about picking it apart, looking things up when you don't know, you know, it's so simple. But that's, I think that that move is really hard for people to see when they're first starting the process. So really the skill is to learn how to learn. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. So if you were, I just want to sort of apply it a little bit to sort of sport in some yeah, sure, sense. Yeah, sure, sure. But one of the aspects of, of soccer in the UK and in the US is that they're so little time spent with the coach mm -hmm. and the player versus the amount of time where a player has opportunities to play on their own. Mm -hmm. And that would apply for many sports, in mm -hmm. fact. Yeah. So what do you say to students um, really to encourage them to start that process of, of learning when they're not in the classroom or the coaching session and they're on their own? Well, I mean, that's the thing. Listen, you've got a coach, right? You've got a teacher, you've got whoever it is, and it's this highly impressive figure who has all of this knowledge. And it's very easy for a student to think or a player to think, oh, this person will solve my problem for me. And that is, like, totally wrong. It is so wrong. Like, as you said, the amount of time that you're going to get with a coach or a teacher or anyone else is vanishingly small. Like, the student has to realize or the player has to realize, no, ultimately, I am my own most important teacher. And 
the coach is a consultant who comes in periodically and like might give me a little bit of insight but I have to really be constantly thinking about my own process and actually a lot of the best studies on that have been done in sports actually this morning I talked to Dan Coyle who wrote the talent code we, had, he, him, we had him on the podcast yeah he's amazing he's, he's great um, and he was talking about basically this player who is plays for baseball for the Cleveland Indians and he's like you know this player was not a great player like when he was drafted he's now really become an amazing player and the reason why is because and you know he talked to the coaches there and they said he comes he's very active about his own practice he's very active about his own improvement he's constantly thinking what is it that I need to be working on what do I need to get are there things I don't understand that I need to clarify so that's I mean absolutely I mean if you're if you're a player you need to realize that you can't rely on your coach he has so many other people to deal with he probably has you know a family of his own he's got a mortgage taxes things that you know well, as a teenager can't build your muscles it's for you. Far, you, yeah. day, it's you you're the product of your own work you know and and so much of what we focus on is the fact that not all practice is created equal you know I mean so many people think oh well I put the time in time is time you know mm-hmm. if I've practiced for 10 hours and he practiced for 10 hours we're yeah. probably both going to be equally good no false you know not all practice is the same and if I show up and I kind of just do exactly what the coach asks and not much more and then I'm sort of talking on the sidelines versus someone who breaks things down to the most minute thing that's not quite working you know if I'm and I'm like oh this one corner kick when it's got this exact angle is the only thing that I can't consistently get that I'm going to do that 2,000 times until Mm -hmm. I can get it every time you know I'm not just going to keep playing and whenever that comes up I'll work on it you know you have to stop focus and then move on and so the people that do that are the people that seem to have this you know crazy rapid progress where they're Mm -hmm. suddenly amazing Mm -hmm. at that one kick and you're like well wait we were at the same practice we weren't doing the same the same level of practice. That's and, really and to, I mean, I think this is actually a really interesting opportunity for you know a lot of the people who are listening, mm-hmm. because the likelihood is, listen, there's a lot of there are a lot of athletes who love athletics and who sort of endure school as you know a thing that allows them to play athletics, yeah. right? Yeah. And you know, side by side, like if you're a teenager, you can just sit there and look at how do you approach the subjects that you hate. Look at how you approach your soccer. There's a huge difference in the mindset that you bring, in the practice that you bring, and that translates to results. And the reality is that if you start bringing the same things that you do to soccer to your schoolwork, you'll see an improvement. And using having those as basically side-by-side case studies for a player, that's a really great way for a student to learn how to learn, is to basically be saying, ah, this works, this doesn't work, what's different, how can I learn from what is not working to make what's working work even better. Yeah, absolutely. One of the points you made about um, having having very clear success stages and, and defining success really, the, the tension is in a game, a sport, mm-hmm. you often are on a team mm-hmm. and your individual performance doesn't necessarily influence the, you know, is it a W or an L mm-hmm. at right. the end of the game. Right. So I, I suppose this applies in other subjects as well, but how do you teach students or, or how would you talk to players about finding individual goals that are measurable that is not entirely reliant on you know some big thing like you know the end of year exam or the, the you know the season defining tournament where so much of that's out of your control in many ways right right well it's it is really about sort of being able to separate the, the huge picture from the, the day-to-day picture and 
that's that's you know that's the problem when you're on a, a perennially losing team. That's the same thing when you <laughs> when every single year you're getting a D in math, for instance. We meet with students and they say to us, "I'm bad at math," and that's just like a blanket thing that yeah, feels like such a behemoth that you can never change it and you can never do anything about it. And in reality, when we sit down and start to break it down, often we'll be going through, you know, calculus problems, and we're like, oh, you actually just never learned how to multiply fractions mm -hmm. 10 years ago, and because you never fixed that, here it is. And so, you know, just fixing that and seeing that on your homework that made five out of 20 problems go better is enough to already kind of get the promise of where that goes, you mm -hmm. know, and so, so it's really about being able to identify exactly what you're saying, those individual kind of small goals, that's what you can be doing when you're not practicing with the team, you know, that's what you can really do on your own time. And to, and to, to be honest with yourself about the fact that what Hunter was saying, it's all, you know, it doesn't matter what you're applying it to, the work is all working in the same way, and so the thing that you love doing and the thing that you hate doing both require the same exact stuff, it's that when you're doing the thing you love to do, it doesn't feel like work. You know, if you love to play soccer and you show up at practice, you're not like, oh, how grueling that I have to do this 20 times. You're like, no, I'm going to do it again and again, and yeah, if it doesn't go right, I can't wait. You know, and you stay an extra half hour to do more because you love it and you want it to go well, and you know that's how you get better. And, and you're happy to do it because the result is so fun to you. If something doesn't feel like that, it's just because you're not quite at the level yet where you can enjoy it. It's, you know, there's just like another little sure. hump that you have to get over. Mm -hmm. But once you get there, everything that you do can feel that way. And, and does that work from a kind of biological perspective in terms of the repetitions have the same effect on the brain whether you like doing them or you don't doing them? Or is there a distinct difference? Yeah, well, people definitely learn faster or slower based on their emotional state. So if you enjoy something, you're learning much, much, much faster. Mm -hmm. uh, if you uh, are intimidated by it, you can actually shut down your learning entirely. Like wow. we say things like, I was so scared I couldn't think. Yeah. Turns out that's true. The amygdala is this tiny little almond-shaped piece of your brain and in a state of fear, it actually shuts down your attention. And whether you're learning math or whether you're learning like the skill of you know doing a corner kick or whatever it is, the attention is how all of that information, how all of that skill essentially happens. So if you shut that down, no learning is happening. So you know emotions are really really huge, and that's the thing is, is that you know in terms of there's the physical game, but there's also the mental game, and the mental game is so important, and that's a large part of what the mental game is about is really you're managing your perspective so that you can manage your emotions and then the emotions if you get the emotions right mm -hmm. it's all gravy I suppose that also applies when it comes to actually using the acquired skill as well yeah absolutely so if you have the fear of learning the skill and you kind of associate a mm -hmm. certain body movement body position with a certain emotion it comes time to say that like you know game deciding penalty kick or whatever it is yeah. in any field you're going to have much more trouble as well yeah. than if the training environment is one that's set up to be an environment of freedom an environment mm -hmm. of a relaxed low pressure environment as well yeah. and that's really important mm -hmm. and there, we now know also I mean there are specifically there are different types of choking like when people right. choke it's so one of the things that can actually happen is is that and this is, this is the one that I find the most fascinating is people start they get into a game and they start thinking right they start thinking about their skills, they start thinking about their technique, <laughs> and what's happening is, is that rather than relying on all of that muscle memory, those habits that you've the developed, practice. you put the attention back in it, uh, on it, and so essentially you're saying to your brain, oh, 
we're in the stage of figuring out this skill, and so you no longer Breaking can rely apart on again. that. Yeah. Don't let it work. Yeah. yeah, and so there's actually a, a trick that like uh, concert pianists and a lot of other people will use is they'll start thinking about something else. You essentially distract the attention with like your you know things you have to do later in the day, like stuff like that. But that's I mean that's what's so fun about all of this is is that you know if you're a if you're a player or a student or whatever it is, once you start moving from like just sort of like desperately wanting to be good and they're actually now saying oh I have access to you know this incredible piece of equipment like let's see how what it does let me try these things out let me experiment with it and let me see like how can I get it to do the things that I want it to do I think one of the points you made earlier about looking back and saying oh the reason you can't address this problem is because of a fundamental that wasn't picked up earlier mm -hmm. and that applies in sport more so than almost any field because Absolutely. if you don't have fundamentals in terms of body movement it's very difficult to do anything uh, you know further down the line yeah so just to go back to, to, to um, you touched upon the types of practice mm -hmm. what were the types of practice that, that you know we currently see in schools versus the types of practice that you found would be more effective well, I mean, yeah, this is such an amazing topic and absolutely in the context of athletics. For our book, even, we did so much research on Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, like people yeah, who yeah, seem yeah. like superhuman when you watch them play. And the fact that no matter how long they've been playing, no matter how many Nike deals they have, they still every single day are getting down to the little, little, little things that make them better and keep their skills up. Because if you don't have the skills... You have nothing, right? So that's so much of what it's about. And I think, you know, same thing happens in the classroom when you see somebody working through a problem or uh, reading comprehension, I think, is a huge part of it. There is a tendency when you're sort of nervous about something or scared of something and your attention is kind of blanking out on it to just sort of go through it and get to the end of it, right? And so you're, you, you know, blow through the problem. You're not really totally paying attention to how to break it down. Or you know you're reading Pride and Prejudice or some other thing that you know teenage boys find unfortunate, and they, you just like <laughs> go through the whole chapter, and then we would say, okay, so what was that chapter about? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, but it, but that's because you're not actually taking something, picking it apart, breaking it down, analyzing the pieces, you know, getting down to what's really going on. You're just kind of doing the task. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the skill that really needs to be built up is, is that thinking about thinking that you, that you said, that metacognition, mm -hmm. right? Which is the act of getting to the end of a page that you have. It's what we call corn on the cob reading because it's like when cartoon characters eat corn, they go ding, it's just like you're just going through line by line by line. And, you know, so when you get to the end of that, it's the ability to say, oh wait, okay, hold on, I'm at the end of the page and I totally have no idea what just happened. That was just me rushing, let me go back. What was this paragraph? Why does that matter? What's going on here? What is this? Why is that a big deal for this character or this whatever, you know, and, and training yourself to get to that thing just uh, in the same way that Michael Jordan doesn't get halfway through a practice that he's kind of been slacking off or just, you know, lazing through and say, well, that's fine, whatever, I did, I did it all. He stops and he's like, 
Michael Jordan. Come on. You're Michael Jordan. <laughs> like, stand at that free throw line and take 20 more shots until the wrist is exactly where it needs to be. You know, so that's the kind of diligence. But once you train yourself to do that, the great part is that it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like a chore. And you don't mind doing it anymore because you're like, that's what you do. If you want to get better, that's just what happens. And ultimately, it starts to become fascinating. I mean, that's one of the interesting things, too, is, is that, you know, you may think that you understand. Like, I, it's because I, I spend so much time, you know, working with kids who are doing algebra and stuff sure. like that. And it's amazing. Like, I still have revelations about algebra because you're just doing it. At, you've done so much of it that you can now appreciate it at a much, much, much deeper level. Um, and the same thing is, you know, going to apply to, you know, soccer drills. Like, you may feel like you've got that drill or you've mastered that drill, but there's a higher level at which you yeah. can master it. And, you know, constantly, you know, pushing and pushing and pushing to for greater levels of mastery on those drills mm-hmm. is ultimately going to translate. Yo-Yo Ma, who's the greatest cellist in the world, still does scales all the time, yeah. you know? And there will never be a day that he doesn't, doesn't do, do scales. scales, you know? So, and that's the thing. I think so much of it is, is that what, what Katie's talking about, and you know, in terms of the structure of our school system, and in terms of what happens with us individually in our performances, we want to like move on to the next thing, mm-hmm. and so we don't give ourselves. We want to be done. We want to be done, <laughs> yeah. and we don't give ourselves the time to be honest and say like, you know what, I've sort of got this. Mm-hmm. Like I'm familiar with this, but I haven't mastered it. Mm-hmm. And really making ourselves sit there until we totally have it flawlessly, and then move on and do other things, and then realize, you know what, I can now go back and do that even better. I think as well that applies because in the back of my head when I have discussions with, with the like of Dan, of Dan Coyle mm-hmm. is that we're talking to a tiny fraction of players mm-hmm. talking to a really small proportion of those are going to you know, go and have a career but they're going to do something else with those skills and it yeah. applies well. but where it definitely applies is with coaches because as a coach I'm constantly learning how to teach and mm-hmm. how to teach in a more effective way so this isn't something that just applies to players and making players you know slightly more you know efficient at corner kicks or you know being able to play in midfield a little bit more effectively or applying it to other areas it's as a coach how do I address my own mm-hmm. practice and it, it can't have helped but improved your teaching to go through this process so have you been approached by, by teachers, by, by school boards, and said, you know, talk to us. How, how do we change how we go about things? Absolutely, and that's, you know, some of the, our favorite messages that we get are from <laughs> teachers who just say, you know, I wish every student in my school had read this book. But, it, you know, I think part of it is that it's when you're teaching, when you're coaching, so much of your, what you're paying attention to is managing the group, sort of what activity should follow, what activity, and it's the very, again, the very, you know, the things you can see, and how can you sort of fix that, mm-hmm. and and it's a, it, so this is an angle that people don't always necessarily fully take into account is that it might not, you know, it has nothing likely to do with the ability of your player. Um, you know, your player is where he is today. Tomorrow he'll be better. Yesterday he was worse. That's whatever. But what emotional state are they in? What is the thing that is mentally blocking them from taking the next step and getting to the next level? And, you know, it's true in the classroom, too. So many of the most frustrating things that happen in the classroom for teachers really come from completely understandable and easily explainable emotional reactions that kids are having. It's just that that's sort of hard to see, and it takes a little digging to Mm -hmm. get to that. 
Whilst I touched upon the fact that most players won't go on to, you know, represent their nation or whatever it is, they won't be in those high-pressure environments in sport. In education, almost every student is going to go on to the real world of work. And do you feel like there's a, a big disconnect between some of the priorities that we apply in the classroom versus what actually is effective and works in the adult world? Yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the biggest disconnect is this. This is that, you know, we have an educational system that is designed for the industrial age. Mm-hmm. It is based on the idea that we want to equip you with, like, a certain set of skills that, you know, is fairly basic and that we hope you will apply for the rest of your life. Well, the reality is, is that the idea that you're going to be able to apply any one set of skills for the rest of your life is insane. Yeah. You know, I mean, you know, I don't, I'm not going to ask you your age, but I suspect that when you were growing up, the idea that Tower Records would go out of business would have been insane to you, right? Most of the kids listening to this probably don't even know what Tower Records yeah. is, you know? Sure. And and that's that's the point, is just that industries disappear, you know, or they so radically change as to be entirely unrealistic recognizable. And so, so much of what's happening in education is is that you're being taught this set of skills with the hope that you will use it forever, and that's not true. And for kids today, that doesn't mean, the, it's not. this is not an excuse, oh, I listened to this podcast, and this guy said, <laughs> no, and so I don't have to pay attention to math class ever. or history <laughs> class or anything like that. It's to say that the important, it actually makes what you're learning even more valuable. Mm-hmm. Because it's not about, like, do you think math is relevant or history is relevant or anything like that. What's relevant is, is that you're being given given, you know, five, six, seven different ways to test how does a person learn. And by the time you graduate, you've had an opportunity to experiment with learning different things. And what you want by the time you leave school, whenever that is, is to know how to teach yourself whatever is required mm-hmm. so that whatever happens in the world, you can adapt to it and you can actually be ahead of the curve so that you can, you know, like have a satisfying, rewarding career, be rich if that's what you want, you know, uh, be the best player on your team because you're learning faster than any, everybody else. Mm-hmm. Whatever it ends up being that you know how to basically be in charge of your own learning and aren't dependent on what's handed to you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, you know, it's it's soccer or it's math or it's history or it's whatever the material is today, but it is, it's really about a way of tackling challenges. How do you face something that you don't know how to do, break it apart, make yourself better at it, and put it back together in a way that you can just but at it, right? And so in that sense, you know, whether these players are going on to, you know, major, you know, if they're playing for Liverpool or they're not, you know, that's fine. But it's still, even that is the same thing. Even if you went through school being an athlete and not really paying attention in your classes and you're now an adult, if you can take what you used to do in practice and apply that to your job, it's all the same thing. And so that's what's kind of so fun about it is that the thing that you've been really good at forever, the thing that you love doing and can't get enough of, you already know how to tackle challenges and pick things apart and do all that work. It's just that it feels like something you love, but you have that skill. You know, so it's it's really that disconnect is about taking that and making that the focus. Mm-hmm. This is what you need to come out of your education with is that ability, that process. The information is just a bonus. Mm-hmm. Hopefully you use it, probably you won't use all of it, you know. Sure. Yeah. But but that's what you know, that's where we really are trying to shift. That brings me almost to the, the sort of final topic I wanted to touch upon, which is how you select what to learn. Because mm-hmm. even if you have the, the best attitude in the world, there's a finite amount of time in which to apply it. So there's first of all there's a tension between competency and mastery. I think mm-hmm. you talked about 
if you really want to master a topic and if you want to be a professional sports person yeah. or you want to be at the top of any industry, you really need to master the fundamentals and then go some beyond. But there's an awful lot of practices, um, not just practices, but you know, vocations where competency is more than enough to have like a much richer mm-hmm. life. Mm-hmm. In those situations, and you can't commit 10,000 hours to learning, how do you choose, like, I guess it's almost like the minimum effective dose, or like, how do you choose which bits to look at and which bits aren't going to give you as much progress as you'd like? Well, the funny thing is so much of this is just driven by your own emotions. Like, there are things that are interesting to you and things that aren't. And, you know, I mean, to some extent, like, go with it. Like, if you're really interested in learning Spanish, that's awesome. Go teach yourself Spanish, you know? And even speaking tiny little bits of a language is going to make your life infinitely richer. Like, so I think that's a large part of it is, is that, you know, you can follow that to a large extent. I mean, you know, ultimately at some point you have to figure out how you make a living right (laughs) and that's one thing but I think one of the really really interesting things and the reason why this is a really exciting time to be alive is you know for so long the focus has been on specialization and being on really narrowly good at one thing and it now you know mostly turns out that that was a terrible idea because innovation creativity imagination it doesn't come from being really good at one thing it comes from being you know having many things that you can then recombine in any, any interesting way. Sure. The, the classic story of that is the Steve Jobs Stanford commencement speech calligraphy story, which is that when Steve Jobs was had dropped out of college, yeah. he he like was started still hanging, he was, still was <laughs> hanging out, probably taking advantage of various free food sources. Um, you know, he took this calligraphy class, and you know, calligraphy is learning how to write really beautiful, fancy, you know, old school stuff, the stuff that monks used to do in the 1200s, and could not seem to be less relevant to the modern world, but he just took it for interest. Well, when he comes to, you know, start up at the Apple Macintosh, he says, wait, fonts. And that's where fonts came from. It came from this weird, seemingly random calligraphy class that he then puts together. So I think that's the biggest thing, is, is that yes, like figure out what you're going to do and do it really, really well. But also if there are other things that interest you, find ways to explore mm-hmm. those passions, because you never know how they're going to combine in some new or interesting way. I mean, you know, pick a book that you love. I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien was uh, a weird language professor. <laughs> and then he was like, so then when he writes a fantasy novel, he's like, I know, I'll invent Elvish. Yeah, Yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, the same thing is true with, you know, I mean, any of these books that people are drawing on, you know, movies, they draw on all these different influences and combine them in really, really interesting way. Your favorite musicians, they're drawing together all sorts of different interesting Mm -hmm. things and combining them in new ways. And you can use your own emotions about whatever you're working on to sort of gauge that for yourself. You know, Mm -hmm. if I said to myself, I want to learn Spanish, maybe I'll teach myself Spanish. I don't need to teach myself Spanish to the extent that I can be the next huge Spanish novelist. Mm-hmm. I just you know, I don't need to be at that level, and that's fine. If one day I get the desire to get to that level, I'll put in a little more time at that point. You know, same deal. Maybe you, you want to try out calligraphy just because it's piquing your interest this week, but you don't mm-hmm. need to become a, a calligrapher. scribe. <laughs> <So, laughs> yeah. You know, it's not you know, and, and so that's fine. So you can kind of tell, but it's really you can use your emotional relationship to gauge with the material to gauge that because you just get yourself to the point where you can enjoy it and feel satisfied mm-hmm. when you're doing it. And so if you're in the workplace, you don't always get to choose what that thing, you know, maybe you have to learn the new software that your boss has sure. given you or else you're fired. And if that's the case, you better find some way to have a fun emotional relationship with that <laughs> yeah. and get to a certain point, you know. So it's not always that picky choosy. Um, 
you know, but you can get to the place where you are past the bad part, past the fear, past being intimidated, past being frustrated with something. And once you get to that place where you're just loving everything that you learn and every new thing that you take on, it still feels hard, but it's, but it's fun. Then, you know, then it'll be obvious to you which way to go. Within sport, there's been, in the last few years, you talk about moving away from specialisation, mm -hmm. a lot of cross-pollination of ideas. For, um, the Olympics being held in London contributed massively to that, but mm -hmm. there's been an openness um, within soccer to look at what do the rugby union team that won the World Championship do well? Yeah. What do the elite cricketers do in their preparation that allows them to concentrate for that degree of time? Right. <laughs> for the longest, most boring game on the planet. <laughs> and... In Australia recently, not all too well either. Yeah. Um, yeah. But there's there's an openness to that. And for me, it seems like technology enables that because for the first time ever, it's, it's possible to see really deeply what does happen within that sport. You, you must you must see that across the board of mm -hmm. learning that technology has a revolutionary That's the most amazing part of it is that the resources at everyone's fingertips are just incredible and there's such transparency now in how things work and what information is out there behind the scenes. I mean, that's how we were able to do the research for our book and find out the quote-unquote real story behind a lot of those genius myths and all of that stuff. And so what we're trying to do is sort of push people past the first hurdle because mm -hmm. now absolutely with the internet, with the courses you can take online, with the videos you can watch about how people do things behind the scenes, you really could learn, you could teach yourself anything you ever wanted to. But before you're going to ever do that, you need to believe that that's possible, right? And that requires shifting your perspective on how learning really works, what it takes to get good at things, and how you, know, how you emotionally approach it. Once you can get to that stage, you're off and running and everything's mm -hmm. there for you. Have, you. have you seen proposals where if you imagine we were to begin education again from scratch, knowing that we have the technology in place that we have? that would kind of implement it on a fundamental level and, and would it radically change how we teach kids in that regard? Yes. Uh, actually, we have one of those proposals and we're, we're, we're writing it currently and sending it out. But the, um, I mean, you know, what we've really seen so far and any time you have a new technology that comes up, this is what tends to happen. They've taken, you know, uh, they've taken essentially what is, you know, uh, an analog, right, solution and they've just put it in the digital world, mm -hmm. right? So you take a classroom, you videotape the classroom, but then you put it online and it's still, you're just watching a classroom lecture. It's like it's passive. not, it's yeah. still passive, right? So there hasn't been any, so far we haven't really seen anything that truly takes advantage of what does it mean, what, what it dis, digital tools really offer us the chance to do. And you know, you've seen a lot of, you know, what that makes possible with Google. Like Google is truly digital native. Facebook is truly digital native. And you know, the customization of the internet that's happening through things like Google and Facebook is ultimately what's going to need to happen with, with education because, you know, it's, you know, teachers are, you know, do there, so much of what ends up happening is because you're dealing with 20 or 30 kids, or in some cases, 70 or 80, yeah. you're having to basically deliver sort of an average, bland, inoffensive lesson that's going to sort of fit for the average student, you know what I mean? And you can't really be like, oh, I know Pavel's sense of humor, he's really going to resonate with this kind of joke, mm -hmm. which somebody else would find totally gross, and then would go home and tell their mom, and then you would get fired, right? right. But that's so, how I'm going to get Pavel's attention today. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the point, is, is that when you can really customize education, then you can give what's perfect 
worked for that one student. We see that a lot in coaching as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the just to go back to the practice earlier you have a plan of what you'd like to do and this applies a lesson plan or a coaching session plan anything like that and more and more you see the excellent coaches have four or five pages of, of what if it's almost like if this then this mm-hmm. if this then this and that's the thing that like I've picked up most from watching really top quality academy coaches and they're working with elite players and they have a lot of contact time so they, they are able to build up that relationship uh-huh. to and they, they track it, it's measured, they understand what does the player respond to, how's the player mm-hmm. feeling, mm-hmm. how's the player going to react if he's feeling this way versus mm-hmm. if he's yeah. feeling this way. And they design then alternative session plans or opportunities or challenges, it might be the same exact layout and setup, but the words they, you know, they say to set it up is slightly different, like it's all excellent, excellent stuff. And just to transmit that to the coaches who work at the bottom level of the game who, who don't have that much contact time is, is crucially important for us it's pretty mm-hmm. part of our mission almost to, to do that the challenge is how do you do that in a way that isn't the bland middle of the road inoffensive right. way well I think that's I think so much of it is is that you know again like that industrial like so much of coaching is essentially limited by the paradigm the idea of the classroom mm-hmm. there yeah. is a person yeah. and they speak to 20 or 30 people Boom. and that doesn't really make sense because what you've forgotten is it's all based on the idea that there's one person with knowledge and 20, 30 people who are idiots. And the point is is that kids may know less, but the hardware is basically the same. Like they're still smart and intelligent and can figure things out. And what you really want to do is empower each of those students to really take charge of their own learning so that they're doing most of the work. Mm-hmm. So that the coach's time is really freed up for those very like targeted specific interventions because the problem is is that you know right now and this goes back to how do players think of themselves it's the whole idea is like we sit around and wait for coach to tell us what to do and it's like no you're smart you should be thinking about your own practice Mm -hmm. and that's how how you basically really can make that thing but you have to break the idea of the classroom yeah because the other thing is that the the players have for whatever information the coach has, the players have also information the coach can't get, mm-hmm. which is how they're feeling, which is what they did. Did you eat a pizza last night when you got home, or did you eat something <laughs> healthy? You know, like, uh, you know, it runs the gamut. But totally every tough. piece of what that is, that the coach can't possibly know all of that information for every player. And so it really is about flipping the model in the same way that they talk about the flipped classroom and education. Flipping that model so that the player is in charge of the process. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't mean that the coach isn't in charge when he yells at you, you do what he says. But the, the player is really assuming control of how it goes, driving the whole thing, and then the coach is there to, you know, pop in from time to time, give a little boost, you know, send them in this direction, but that they're confident enough and that they, they know it's paying off enough that they can go off on their own have time when the coach isn't directly paying attention to them during practice mm-hmm. and know how to be practicing so that mm-hmm. that time is still being used well. And that's one of the interesting things. I mean, some of the truly legendary coaches are legendary for doing almost nothing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, there are certain, uh, you know, certain coaches, I mean, that's what they're famous for, you know, and that's because they've got the players to take charge of their own practice and therefore they can make those very minor, subtle, targeted corrections. I think that's fascinating. Um, looking at differences in kind of US and UK coaching culture, that 
the coach, I think if you look across the US, the majority of states, the highest paid state official is a coach of some variety, um, mm-hmm. and which, which is fascinating itself. Yeah. But, the, but the coach within the local community is a, is a hero, he's yeah, a yeah. deification of the coach, and not to mention what that does to egos and to you know, <laughs> politics within the game, right. but what it does do is it it means the players tend to look to the coach for mm-hmm. solutions even within the game so we talked earlier about right. at the exact point when it should be automatic and mm-hmm. you should understand the principles yes. make a decision based on that they're not they're just what does the coach say yeah. and you have an entire sport predicated on that <laughs> um, like American football is endlessly right. fascinating mm-hmm. right. um, even basketball to some degree mm-hmm. has you know enough breaks in it that you can have that Whereas if you're playing soccer, you play for 45 minutes right. mm-hmm. without, you know, you can shout mm-hmm. and hope that the guy who's at least 70 yards away hears you, but it's, it's pretty unlikely. So <laughs> you have to you have to have players who understand the game That's to do That's that. Right. And I guess that comes back to the idea of it's, yeah, you talked about it It's not just fundamental skills that allow you to do it, but then you go beyond that. It's how do you teach things that require things that are you know naturally variable so the space changes or the mm-hmm. speed of the ball the flight of the ball changes like that's never the same twice in the way mm-hmm. that it might be in, in certain professions so how do you apply the ideas from say a, a talent code or an outliers mm-hmm. with a lot of repetition to something that is innately variable do you have any well, thoughts on it any ideas that's so much of it I mean you know and it's really you have to create the drill that is about that exact exercise. I mean, you know, the example that one of the examples that Dan Coyle gives in the talent code is all about Brazilian soccer practice and that they play with a little wadded up pieces of paper in a really small room because it creates that really intense experience where you're really focusing on the skills rather than like focusing tiny footwork exactly. That is like so, I mean, yeah. yeah. But so, so I, then when you get a bunch bigger ball, you're like, oh, this is the easiest thing ever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's the thing is, just listen. I mean, that's you know, if you're if you're if you're a coach or if you're a player, great. Figure out, okay, if we're focused on spacing, right? How are we going to test and develop that skill, right? Like, what is the drill that is going to serve that? And you know, am I the best person to ask about that? No, <laughs> because I don't know very much about. I mean, we're calling it soccer for you know, know crying right? out loud. You know, it's football, people. But um, you know, so I mean, that that may, we may not be have enough knowledge of the game to be able to come up with that. And I don't fully understand what the spacing problem is. But you know, that's the thing is I. Isolate that and then figure out, okay, if we're trying to solve that problem, what are we doing? And actually, one thing that I will say that might be useful is, you know, so much of what we've now found out about some of those skills that you're talking about are really being driven by what are called heuristics. And heuristics are mental shortcuts that people use. And if you really talk to the players who know how to do those things, like spacing or whatever, you're going to find that they're going to have some sort of like shortcut mental test that they've developed to think about that, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And if you can tease out of them what are those rules, you know, if this, then this, then what you can do is you can teach that in a matter of, you know, weeks rather right. than in a matter of, you know, decades. So that, that literally is a case of they have a series of pictures in their head. Mm-hmm. Patterns. So if they, you know, if okay. you're facing the opposing team and you're running down the field and their formation isn't what you expected, if you've practiced and you have those shortcuts, you can see even part of that start to take shape and you already know where to go. Whereas mm-hmm. a more novice player would have to say, oh, okay, hold on. Suddenly, like, he was playing much closer to the goal before and now, like, the center is way up here. What's going on? And, um, and so, you know, people have ju- sort of jump cuts that they get to. It's the same way that you see any expert in any field 
do analyses of problems they're faced with seemingly quickly when you think it's a huge mess and you don't know how they made sense of it. But that's because they have those sort of shortcuts and things are part of bigger chunks of information that they can sort mm -hmm. of deal with at once. So that's part of it. And then part of it is also, I think just, you know, again, it all, it all comes down to emotions. It really mm -hmm. does. But, but that idea of um, being comfortable with with adjusting and seeing the holes in your own game as they're happening so that you don't get the moment where you get to the end of a game and say, well, pfft, the grass was kind of wet today and I never practiced for that, so it's not my fault. What could I do so, about it? You know, mm -hmm. you don't go off. Instead, the first second that you get out there, you're like, the grass is wet. What could that mean? Okay, what should I be paying more attention to? Maybe a header is too dangerous in this situation because, like, the ball could go flying or whatever. Sure, yeah. Obviously, we know nothing about <laughs> <laughs> um, The point you made, though, it... it genuinely amazing that so many like of the Premier League managers at the end of the game will make excuses of things that were out of their control because that happens in every sport yeah absolutely <laughs> but the athletic mantra if you ask a question as a journalist to a player before any game their answer unilaterally will be I focus on what I can control if they happen to lose the game it almost exclusively is a refereeing decision, mm -hmm. pitch conditions, sure, sure, or sure. like well, some external factor. Yeah, it's and sometimes you know, at the end of the day, if the ref hates your team, like the ref hates your team, you can't really you can try to butter him up during the yeah. game, but it's probably not going to work. But <laughs> I made you these crumpets. There are yeah, there are things that you can do. You know, if you are somebody who's comfortable with just doing that constant analysis mm -hmm. all through your life, oh, I'm working on something right now in this moment. I don't like how it's going. Let me adjust. Da, da, da. And you don't have anything on it and you know, I don't sit here and I'm like, Katie, you're doing a really bad job saying this right now. Fix it. You know, what's wrong with you? You know, I just go, oh, that didn't make sense. Let me clarify that and I'll say it again. Or what, you know, then that's the kind of thing where you can get to a place where you sort of are ready for anything. Mm -hmm. And maybe today it doesn't all go your way or you're not completely expert at all of those things. But then the very next thing you do is at tomorrow's practice, you go to your coach, you say, I cannot let that happen again. I felt like I was a flailing mess out there because the grass was wet. So what can we do? You know, and that, that, by the way, is really the practice of the power of fundamentals. Like, if you really, so much of this is, you know, a lot of what we're now finding out is about automaticity, right? Mm -hmm. You do anything often enough, and this is a big section of the book, automaticity, if you do anything often enough, it becomes automatic, right? So, for example, you know, if you're a kid in school, you're not really having to think about, oh, what does a B sound like? I'm trying to remember, like, da 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 You don't have to think about that. And so, if you really get your fundamentals in football right, then you're going to have really automated that and you won't have to think about it and then your attention is free to focus on oh how does the field look sure. you know because the people who haven't really automated those fundamentals are like oh how did I do this again like what did my coach tell me wait a minute what are we supposed to be doing here and then you're of course you get totally surprised that suddenly somebody has taken the ball away from you because your attention can only really be on one unautomated thing yeah and so if your attention can just be on the variable of today, mm -hmm. what are the pitch conditions, what are whatever, mm -hmm. you know, then you have that ability to trust that you've put the work into all the other parts of your game, that they'll be there. They'll be mm -hmm. there for you. You just worry about this one thing that you didn't expect. So it'll just come back to the practice outside of the training session and, yeah. and laying the foundations. That's strong. right. What's your hope for the future, guys? Like, if you could... You know, lay a not lay a blueprint out for five years, but if you like had a realistic expectation for the next five years, do you see rapid improvement in the education system? Well, the interesting thing is, is that you know people are very excited right now because of what technology is doing. 
And, you know, it's amazing what's happening. I mean, there are videos available that are available, you know, in all sorts of languages for every conceivable subject. But I think what we all have really, really, really have to realize is, is that the educational revolution is not going to come from what is done by Google or Apple or Facebook. It's going to come from what is done by students because they are the ones who control their own thinking mm -hmm. and that's ultimately what it's about. Education is really about what is the individual learner thinking and so, so much of what has to happen is a cultural change. We really have to change the way that we think about practice, the way that we think about coaching, the way that we think about ourselves. And, and I mean, the way that you phrase that question, like, is there going to be a big change in the educational system? No. <laughs> you know, I mean, but I think so much of the point of it is this is a sort of grassroots shift yeah. because if you are a player or a student today and your life is horrible and you feel bad about yourself and how things are going, you don't have time to wait for legislation to make sure. your classroom more digital or smaller yeah, or anything. Simple. You don't have time for your, you know, to wait four years till your, hopefully your university coach is better than the coach you have now. Like, that's just not an option. You need to do something right now. And so we're really focusing on, you know, what can people do to take charge of things today and feel empowered and make it go better. I think that answers the final question I had, which was, why was it important to you that you address the book directly to the student, and, and you've, you've kind of touched upon that the whole the whole way through, but just, just reiterate again that it's a book for students more so than it is really a book for the, mm -hmm. the teachers or the coaches out there. Is that fair to say? Yeah, we wrote the book that we wish we'd had in high school, you know, and so it's really, it's written to somebody who, you know, is a teenager, because that's the people, I mean, that's the thing, guys, like, you are the ones who are going to decide the future of the world, and those decisions are not going to be made when you are 30 or 40 or 50, they're being made today, you know, and if you guys get it right now, the rest is gravy. Coughing is a better way to end, so <laughs> I'll see you guys with that.